Welcome to the sermon podcast for Restoration Nazarene Church, where we encourage you to be the gospel today so that you can share the gospel tomorrow. Good morning. The women in the room, I have a question for you. What is your role in the church and what is your role at home? Sabrina's role is to make as much noise as possible in both places. And then my question is, are you aware of what the Bible says about the role of women in the church and at home? 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35. Women should remain silent in the churches, Sabrina. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Ephesians 5, through 24, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. This is what the Bible says. But the point of our series is to see what the Bible really says, especially with these verses. Now, this is a very big topic, and it's so big that we're going to have to separate it into two parts. Part one today, part one next week. Part one today is the role of women at home or within a family, and next week will be women within the church and their role. And we had a fun conversation on Wednesday during our Bible study about some of Jesus's strong language and the questions that, that we came up with where we would ask, what was Jesus's intent with his strong language to these people? And what did the original audience hear or or what did they interpret when Jesus said those things? And then for us today, what do we do with that language, with those verses, with that intent? What do we do with that for us today? And the same questions are true when we approach any passage of Scripture. We always need to remember or keep in mind what the original author meant and then also what the original hearers heard and then figure out how that translates to us today. In addition to that, we must always ask ourselves if this verse or passage is descriptive or prescriptive, meaning does it describe a situation that was going on that was particular to that time and that culture? Is it describing something or is it prescribing? Is it giving us a prescription to follow for all of time, all of languages, all of cultures to come? And so as we are asking those questions, we have to also keep in mind that what we read today, we read in English, which was not the original language of that time. We are reading translations of the original 
language. And you've probably heard people say things that, how things can lose meaning over time. Like, have you ever watched any of those older romantic movies where, where the, the guy always says something super romantic in Spanish or Italian, and the woman is just in awe and says, oh, tell me what that means. And then the guy tries to translate it, and it, it just, it's horrible. And then he follows it up with, well, it loses its meaning as it's translated. The same can be true of the Bible. The New Testament that we just read from, the New Testament was written over 2,000 years ago in Greek. And then from Greek, it was translated into Latin. And from Latin, it was translated into many other languages. And today, we have over 100 different English translations of the Bible and the question, I know some of you, because you've asked me the question, why do we have so many translations? And which translation is, is true? Which one is correct? Especially when they seem to say different things. The King James Version will say something, but then the New Living Translation says something different. It's different words, and you get a different meaning out of this. So I thought it would be really fun to create an example of this. So what I did is I took writings from Shakespeare, written in about the 1600s or so in Old English. And then I used Google Translate to take the writings in Old English and I translated it into Latin, and then from Latin to Japanese, from Japanese to Spanish, and from Spanish back into modern English. And this is what happened. It should be on the screen. So this is from Julius Caesar, Act 2, Scene 2, is cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. And after I translated it, this is what it comes up to. Shy people often give up before they give up. Strong chopsticks or you can try once. Again, that was from Old English to Latin to Japanese. You can see the Japanese in there to Spanish back to English. Here's another one. Romeo and Juliet, Act 2, Scene 2. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other words would smell as sweet. After the translations, what her name? What we call roses, I mean, it smells sweet. And this one's from Hamlet. I think this is probably the most famous Shakespeare, Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die to sleep. And after translations, willing or not, that is the question. If so, will I shoot an arrow into the center of the huge compartment or will my arms grab the sea and the battle will be over, die, sleep. You can see that things lose meaning as they are translated into other, other languages. Now, I'm not suggesting that our English translations have lost meaning. Do not hear that from what I am saying. Our English Bibles still have just as much meaning as they did back then. That is not what I am suggesting. And Bible translators know this. And so that is why they, they have different types of translations. There are some that attempt to do a literal word for word translation, which is what 
what I did, a literal word-for-word translation, and then they make sure that it makes sense within the English language. And then there are others that take the concept or the idea that is being taught or spoken about or written about, and then they rewrite that in English so that it makes sense for our culture to understand it. And that is why we have so many different translations is because there are different ways to do that. But we also have to remember that a single word can mean different things, either literally or metaphorically, which we call homonyms. For example, the English word right can mean the, the direction, the, the location to the right, or, or it can mean correct. You are right in this situation, or, or your answer is correct. It can mean good, right versus wrong. It could talk about our own rights. We have the right to gather this morning to assembly in worship. It, politically, it could talk about the right party, the conservative party. Or we could say that my Bible fell right off the table to talk about how it completely fell off all of the way. All of these are the exact same word right, spelled the exact same way. We didn't even add in the synonyms of W-R-I-T-E or any of those. And, and you all know what I'm talking about. You've had those conversations before where you're trying to give somebody directions. I do this to my wife all the time. Let's just say one of us in our relationship is very directionally challenged and the other one knows how to read a map. And so we'll be on the phone and I'll say, dear, all right, turn, turn right. And or I tell her, turn, turn left. Let's say that we say turn left. And she goes by the stop sign, right? And I say, no, turn left. And, and then she responds, she says, but it's right next to the stop sign. And I say, no, not right, turn left. And she said, that's what I said. I know I am right. And I say, no, turn left, not right. You get my point. This happens with Hebrew and Greek words all the time where there is one word that could mean multiple things or there are many English, there's an English word that can have multiple meanings. And so trying to translate all of those is very difficult. And my point for going through all of this is that we always need to be careful with what we are reading and how we are interpreting it. So with all of that context, you are all now Bible scholars and ready to translate the Bible. So now let's see what the Bible really says. And today we're going to focus primarily on that Ephesians passage in chapter 5 and 6. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21. <clears throat> submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Chapter 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. So here in this passage, we have rules for wives. We have rules for husbands and we have rules for children. And our goal is to determine if these rules are descriptive, describing something that was going on in that time frame, in that culture, or prescriptive, meaning it's prescribing what we must follow even today. And so starting with the role between husband and wife, we see two really strong points, verses 23 and 24. 23 is the husband is the head of the wife. Verse 24, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, if we break those out and we look first at the head, the husband is the head of the wife. When we think of head, we think of a leader, right? We think of, of a company that their head of a company is the CEO. And the CEO usually makes all of the really big decisions or leads the company. The president of the United States is also called the head of the state or head of government. It's the head. We, we think of the top. We think of the top of our bodies is our head or the top of a nail is called a head. So when we read this, we think the man is now in charge of the wife because he is the head, the leader. But that is not what they would have thought of 2,000 years ago. People in the time of, of Jesus and prior to Jesus, the Hebrew people, they did not have the same understanding of the human anatomy that we do. Today, we will often talk about human body parts and we'll use it as like a metaphor, right? Head is where all of our knowledge comes from, all of our logic. If you're a really head smart person, you've got all the knowledge, you're a logical thinker. And heart, we think of heart as, as being the emotions. Men, you, you don't let your emotions show. You, you're, you're not that type of a person that's typically reserved for females, right? At least that's what the culture says. But we use these metaphors, even though we know that the heart all it does is pump blood through the system. It does not control emotions. That all comes from the brain. But yet we still use these metaphors to talk about that. I love you so much. I heart you. We talk about that coming from our hearts. And for them, way back then, the heart was the center of the body, which it is today. And the heart functioned as the part that controlled everything. The heart is where your emotions came from. The heart is where your desires and your passions came from. It was your soul. It was the center of who you are. And because it did all of that, your heart is also where you did all of your thinking and reasoning. 
If you've ever read through the Old Testament, you will see how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That language of hardening the heart means hardening everything. All of their processing power, all of their thinking and their reasoning was there. But to the Hebrews, the head was something different. They didn't understand how the brain worked and controlled everything. And so the head for them had four functions. The head holds your eyes, holds your ears, your mouth, and your nose, meaning everything that the head did was to take things into your body, right? We see things and take in the sight. We hear things, take in what we hear. We smell and take in the smell, and then our mouth takes in breath for us to breathe, but then it also takes in food and water for us to eat and drink so that we can survive, which means that the head was primarily used to feed the body. The head was primarily used as a source of nourishment, as a provider, while the heart was the one that was really in control of everything. The head fed the rest of the body, even with sight and smell, that the head is bringing in all kinds of information for us to understand. In other words, the head is the source of Whatever we need, the head is the source that provides whatever we need. Think of a river. The head of a river is the source of where the water comes from, the source of where the flow comes from. The head is not controlling the river. The head is the source that feeds the rest of the river. So back then, to say that someone is the head of the household does not mean that they are in charge. Did I just hear a clap? I think Kim was clapping. Yes, amen. I should have heard a loud amen from that one. Back then to say that does not mean that the, the husband or whoever the head was, was in charge. It meant that whoever the head of the household was, was the one that was the provider that would care for, that would nourish, that would provide for the needs that they had. So if the husband is the head of the wife or the head of the household, that means the husband is the one that provides for the wife in the household. And to further this, we can see an example from Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, meaning Christ is the source of every man. And the head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Paul says that God is the head of Christ. Now, does this make any sense if we believe in the Trinity that that God exists in three persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? How could one part of the Trinity be in control of the other? That doesn't really make sense because now we're trying to separate them and say that God is the ruler of Christ, which contradicts Colossians 2.10, which Paul also wrote. It says, and in Christ you have been brought 
to fullness. He, meaning Christ, is the head over every power and authority. So in one place it says that God is the head of Jesus, of Christ. But then another place Paul says, but Jesus is the head over every power and authority. And we know that God has power and authority. Amen, right? And so now Paul obviously doesn't seem to understand who's in charge of who unless he means something different unless he means that God is the source of Christ, which is what we find in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, he sent his only son. God was the source, the provider of Jesus Christ in the world. God is the source of himself. God and Jesus, nobody is greater than the other. They are the same together. So then when we read this passage that the husband is the head of the wife, we cannot impose our own interpretation and our own understanding based on our culture onto it. We cannot read this as the husband is the leader and the ruler over the wife. Instead, it means that the husband is the provider of the family which is further described in verse 29 by saying that men must feed and care for their own wives in the same way that they feed and care for their own body. Men must provide for their wives like they provide for themselves. The point of what Paul is talking about in this entire Ephesians passage comes from that other word, submit, submission. Wives, submit to your husbands. And Paul begins all of this in verse 21. And through this verse, verse 21, Paul outlines what it means within the family. And again, those verses are 21 through 24. Submit, there's that word, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, meaning the source, the provider. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. However, there's, there's something to point out here. Up on the screen, you should have it where it highlights the words submit you see that um, eventually Kylie will put it on the screen. If not, you'll find it in verses 21, 23, and 24 is highlighted. Go to the next one. Next one. There you go. So it's highlighted in bold submit. You see that you find it in verses 21, 23, and 24. But now, any Greek scholars out there? Anybody know how to read Greek? Nope. I was looking at Cindy. Nope. Okay. If you were to go back and read this in Greek, what you will not find is that word submit in verses 23 and 24. You will find it in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But then verse 22 does not have that word submit. In fact, it doesn't have any verbs at all. It just simply continues the thought, which would sound something like this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now is the church to Christ so also wives to their husbands in everything. It's furthering this thought 
at some point, the English translators, because we know that you almost always need a verb or some type of an action to make a complete sentence, they added that in there to carry it forward and they put it in the places that didn't have action. So women submit to your husbands, but that idea should have carried forward through to husbands also submitting to their wives. Like verse 21 says, submit to one another. It doesn't just say females submit to males. It says submit to one another. And again, I am not stating that the English translation is broken or that the English translation is wrong. What I'm saying is it put it puts an emphasis on something that we don't need to emphasize because that is what we read within our own culture. Because Paul's point is that everyone must submit. Everyone submit to one another. Wives submit to your husbands as the providing source like Christ is to all things. And then in the same way, verse 28, we see verse 28 through 29, it says, in the same way, meaning through submission, right? In this same way, through submission, husbands ought to love, ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And the question then is, how did Christ love the church? Because it says that, that men should love their wives, just like, like Christ loved their church. And so the question is, how did Jesus love the church? He loved through submission and sacrifice. And this is really an infinite call for submission and sacrifice. Men potentially have this bigger burden to carry because it means that we need to keep on loving our wives like Christ loved the church, meaning that men, we have to keep on submitting and sacrificing for our wives just as Christ did for the church. So the question then is this passage descriptive, describing what was going on, or prescriptive, prescribing what we should do going forward? The answer is yes to both of those. It is describing the original thinking of how the body works. The, the men back then were the ones that provided for their families. They were the head. They were the source of all those things. And what Paul is prescribing here, telling us for all nations and all people to come, has nothing to do with the head. It has nothing to do with whether or not somebody is the head of the household or not. What Paul is trying to get across is that it has everything to do with us acting like Jesus. Through love and submission. We must all love like Christ. We must all submit as Christ submitted, which leads right into chapter six in the role of children and fathers. Verse one of chapter six, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Paul tells children to obey 
their parents. And this word obey means to submit to what one hears. You hear something, you submit your own desires and wants to follow the rule, to follow after them. It's a word of submission. So once again, we have wives submit to your husbands. Husbands submit to your wives. Children submit to your parents. And then the question that we must ask is, well, then who are the children? And if you read this, there really is no age tied to this. It does not say that people under the age of 18 must obey your parents. Those of you that have adult children, you still call them adult children. You still identify them as your kids, which means that this applies to any of us that have parents. We are all children that have parents, regardless of how old we are, which means that we must continually submit and obey and love those around us. And then Paul says in verse four, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now this requires a quick pause. Because this is something that we easily miss in our culture. We read this and says, fathers, don't, don't exasperate your kids. Don't overly punish them. Don't do these things. And we say, well, of course not. That doesn't make any sense at all. In today's culture, if we rewind 50 years ago, that would have been a little bit different of how punishment acted back then and what was considered child abuse and what was not. I've been teaching all week and there's a lot of teachers there that have been arguing for the fact of let's bring back a ruler and something to punish these kids. Obviously they're joking, but cultures have shifted in the last 50 years. Now, if we were to go back in time to what Paul was saying, we would read this or hear this and we would see that this was extremely countercultural. A Roman father of this time had the legal right to do with their children whatever they wanted to. If they didn't want a newborn baby, they could throw it outside of the city. There was a place outside of the city that they just tossed their baby for the wild animals to come and take away. If they didn't want the baby, they didn't have to keep it. They could sell their child into slavery if they wanted to. They could force their child to work under any circumstances that they wanted to. Fathers could even kill their children as punishment. And it was completely legal for this. Fathers had complete control and ownership of their children. And so for Paul here to say, that you can't do that, that you cannot be extreme, that you cannot exasperate your children. That would have been a big deal for them back then. He is saying, fathers, you must love your children. He tells them to bring them up in teaching and instruction of the Lord, meaning to, to train, to lead, to guide. We could even say to feed them with knowledge you see the head of the household that feeds them with knowledge, that feeds them with food and water that provides for them because the father is the head of the household, the provider. In other words, we see this. Jesus Christ loved us and submitted his life to us. 
And in the same way, wives, you must love your husband and submit to your husbands just like Christ did for you. Husbands, you must love your wives and submit and sacrifice for your wives just like Christ did. Children, you must love your parents. You must obey and submit to them just like Christ did to them. Parents, you must love your children like Christ loved the church. The theme here that you see as you read this entire passage has nothing to do with who is in control of whom. It has everything to do with love out of each other or love for one another through what Jesus Christ has done. We could even stretch that to our mission as a church, as Kurt's shirt says, to be and share the gospel. And this is all possible because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. He submitted his life through love. He died on the cross through love. He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven through love. And he gave us the power of the Holy Spirit through love. And Christ calls all of us to share that love back to all of creation by modeling the life of Christ. And the life of Christ is submission and sacrifice and love. And we do all of this because Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the source. Jesus is the one that provides. He is the one that fills. He is the one that feeds us. He provides all that we need as the church. So then the question this morning is what do we do with all of this information? What do we do with this passage? How do we live our lives within our family systems that we have? Knowing that not everybody is married, so to use the language of wives and husbands does not apply to everybody if you read this. We know that not everybody has children. We know that not everybody has living parents anymore. How do we apply this to those that live in broken homes where one party, man or wife, is abusing the other person. When they have broken that covenant of marriage, what do we do in that situation? And it's simple. You love God and you love others. Nobody is the ruler of somebody else because Christ is the ruler of everything. Men are not the rulers of women, and women are not the rulers of men. And that should be especially freeing for anybody that has ever experienced any type of an abusive relationship, or for those that are watching online that have experienced that. You do not have to submit to your abuser, because that is not what God had intended. Yes, we all do have different roles and functions within the family. Some of us provide, both men and women can provide for the home. Both men and women can care for the home, can, can feed the children, can care for them, can provide instructions. Both men and women can work outside of the home while children are learning from somewhere 
else. Yes, we can have situations where there's a single parent raising kids. There's a single person without any kids or marriage. There are so many different scenarios that we can think of. So many what-if scenarios that we can come up with. But it all boils down to the concept of loving other people. Love one another. Submit to one another. That is everyone. And so to husbands, I say, love your wives as Christ loved the church. To wives, I say, love your husband as Christ loved the church. To those that are single, I say, love one another as Christ loved the church. To those that have children, love your children as Christ loved the church. To those that have parents, I say, love your parents as Christ loved the church. I think you get the point here that we are to love one another regardless of what our family system actually looks like. Regardless of if we have physical parents or if we have spiritual parents that we can obey and submit and love to. Regardless of if we have a large family or no family at all. We still have a church family. We still have neighbors, co-workers. We have people in our lives, which is what we talked about last week as part of the church. That is the role of the church to be in community with one another. All of that falls under the umbrella of loving one another like Christ loved the church. And the idea here, at least for this week, is unity. We are all united together as believers, as Christians, as children of God. As Paul says, there is now no therefore Jew or Gentile, male or female, master or slave, because we are all united together as one. And there is no better way to celebrate that than to participate in communion. And Amy's going to pass out communion elements this morning. And communion... What, the way that we do it here is, is we have this little, this little package and in the package you will find a small piece of gluten-free bread and a little tiny bit of grape juice. And the, the communion package as itself, there's nothing special about the package itself. This is not holy juice or holy bread. This is simply ordinary elements. But with ordinary elements, as we pray over them, God can take these ordinary elements and turn them into something extraordinary in our lives. And so as we gather together as one, we gather together united. I say this every time, but we all entered into this building through the same doors. The same doors. It doesn't matter what your status is. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how much money you don't have. It doesn't matter what you do for work. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter anything at all. We all entered into this same place together as one on equal ground. And together we can remember what Christ did. We remember that on the night before Jesus Christ was betrayed, before he suffered the death, before he submitted his life through love for us, he gathered all of his disciples together. Throughout this time, this, this last week with them, you see and you can read about how much Jesus submitted to one another, how he got down to wash the disciples' feet. 
And he gathered them all together, including the one that would betray him. And he took the bread. And after giving thanks, he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my body. Pour it out for you. Drink in remembrance of me. In that moment, the disciples had no idea what was going on. They received the bread, they received the juice, but they had no idea what Jesus was planning. They had no idea what was going to come. It wasn't until later that they understood the significance of what just happened. And in the same way, we just received these. And we have no idea what that really means. We have no idea how to fully comprehend what is going on. But it is through this act that we remember who Jesus is. It is through this act that we get to experience more of God's grace in our lives. Let's pray. Father, Holy One, this morning we submit ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to one another. We remember the cross. We remember the sacrifice. We remember your love. Father, this morning, help us in the ways that we have failed to love one another. Help us in the ways that we have failed to love you. We ask for forgiveness. And we ask for strength to go out into this week, to love more, to be your hands and feet, and to share your message. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your submission and sacrifice. We worship you this morning. We praise you. And we pray all of this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. My challenge for you this week is to leave this place and to remember a simple four-letter word, love. Love one another through submission and sacrifice. As we leave this place and we're sent back out into the world, may we together as the body be sent out as missionaries, as priests, the royal priesthood, the holy priesthood of all believers. May we be sent out to live Jesus in the world, to be and share the gospel this week. May God bless you this week as you leave. Thanks for joining us today. We would love to continue the conversation and connect with you. Comment, like, subscribe, follow us on the socials at rnazchurch or our website, rnaz.church.